Hello, everyone. Really want to thank everyone who's been listening to this series, and I just want to let you know that I really appreciate all the feedback that you guys are giving me. Uh, I'm excited for this next episode, which will be the second to last episode of the Book of Jeremiah before we move on to a, a different narrative perspective. So I hope you guys enjoy. The Gospel of Jeremiah, chapter 4. The water wakes and stirs as a harsh cold wind from the east spills down from Mount Hermon and strikes against the warm air that hangs over the Galilean Sea. Dark and heavy clouds billow up like smoke rising from the blistering and burning wind. The meager fishing boat the men command rocks and the sons of Zebedee cry out commands as they attempt to tear down the sail which whips furiously in the wind. Simon and his brother attempt to use oars to turn the boat, but a sudden wave swells and crashes against the starboard side, rocking the boat and throwing Simon from his feet. Simon attempts to regain his balance, but the blade of his oar catches in the water and the shaft jerks back and strikes against the side of his head. The oar splits his ear and blood begins to run down his face as he collapses into the hole. Water, which has begun to fill the small boat, laps against Simon's hands as he struggles to push himself up. He turns his eyes upwards and looks for his teacher, who lays serene and unstirred, his head gently resting against a pillow. How is he still sleeping? Simon asks under his breath. Andrew shouts for Simon to get up and help him turn the boat. Rise, brother, or the waves will surely overtake us, he cries, but his voice is lost in the wind. Another wave crashes against the boat, nearly overturning it. With one hand holding on to the cargo and the other clinging to the mast, the praised one looks out towards the harbor of Magdala, only to realize that a great mist has enveloped the boat. The horizon is gone and the billowing clouds have blotted out the sun. They are sailing blind, spinning in the storm with no direction. Andrew cries again for the help of his brother, but Simon is fixed on his teacher. Simon crawls towards his master and reaches out a hand and grabs his foot. Teacher, he shouts in desperation, wake up! A fiery red glow erupts beneath the surface of the sea, and the praised one cries out in fear as he watches the water boil, and the shadowy outline of the great horned serpent passes beneath the boat. Teacher, Simon repeats, screaming at the top of his lungs, don't you care that we're going to drown? Finally, their master rises from his place of rest and walks up to the front of the boat. The sons of Zebedee drop their ropes that they struggle with, and Andrew lets go of his oar as they watch their teacher lift up his hands and speak peace to the storm. Be still, he commands, and the winds and the waves begin to obey. The clouds begin to dissolve, and beams of light cut through the storm. The fury of the sea dies, and the sail lowers to calmly rest against the mast. The disciples tremble in awe as they look upon their master. Simon slowly rises to his feet and watches as his teacher turns back towards him. Why are you afraid? The master's voice is calm and powerful. John drops to his knees and trembles at his teacher's feet. Who then is this? John says, his voice shaking. That even the waves of the sea obey him? A murmur of awe ripple through the disciples. But Simon furrows his brow and raises up a hand. Um, hang on. 
Uh, Jesus, is that a real question? The teacher looks questioningly at Simon, but does not answer. Like, do you really not know why we were afraid? Because uh, we all just thought we were going to die back then. Peter, Jesus says as he reaches out a hand. Do you still have no faith? Well, I, I don't know if it's a matter of faith, Simon says as he raises his hands defensively. Uh, this storm was pretty intense. I had no idea you could do something like this. Simon looks around for support amongst his fellow disciples. I mean, you guys say something if I'm out of line here, but I personally, I thought we were going to die. Several of the disciples nod and James speaks up in agreement. Yeah, this was easily the most terrifying storm I've ever been in. I saw the serpent beneath our boat, the praise one exclaims. Simon points and nods with a raised eyebrow. Judas saw the Leviathan, say. I think the point my brother is trying to make, Andrew says diplomatically, it's just that I think we're all a little bit unclear on the scope of your powers, and it just seems like a little unfair to rebuke us for lack of faith when it seems pretty reasonable we would be terrified in this situation. And just to back up, you can control the weather? Not to be too much of a zealot here, Simon says as he raises an eyebrow and cocks his head. But can't you use that power to, like, bring liberation? I mean, even Caesar would be no match for a messiah who can literally call lightning down from heaven. I'm not here to bring a kingdom of this world, Jesus responds. Okay, sure, I, I'm, I'm not sure what that means, but if you don't want to smite people, you don't have to. We, we're experiencing some severe droughts. Why couldn't we use that power to, you know, take care of our people? I mean, you know the old saying, give the crowd five loaves and two fish, and you feed them for a day. Teach them to divinely summon the rain, and you give them enough resources to finally break free of the stifling weight of Roman occupation. I crack a smile as I let the story play out in my head. What's so funny? Rose asks as she passes by me in the kitchen. Oh, nothing, I say as I close my Bible and slide it over to the side. I take my ceramic mug in my hand and slowly swirl the stale remnants of coffee that remain before taking a sip. Wait, are you actually doing the Bible study reading? What do you mean, actually? I always do, I say indignantly. She gives me an unconvinced look, and I shrug. Fine, uh, yeah, Connor is leading tomorrow's discussion, so he asked for my help. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. I'd hold your praise until after the Bible study. Not sure I'm going to have anything of substance to add. Well, I think if, if you're just show engagement, everyone would really appreciate it. I seriously doubt that, I think to myself. My phone buzzes and I look to see a number I don't recognize. I let it go to voicemail. Maybe I could help add in some cultural context, add fun facts about how the Galilean Sea is actually not a sea at all, but a lake. Talk about how it wasn't uncommon for windstorms to suddenly arise when sailing on the Galilean Sea can't imagine anyone would really care, but at least it would feel like I was contributing something. Rose moves with an eager energy as she gets ready to leave for her afternoon shift. Are you going to be late? I ask as she ducks in front of the bathroom mirror to pull up her hair. Well, I'm not going to be early, she says with a couple bobby pins in her mouth. Ah, oh, God forbid. I get up and lean against the bathroom doorframe, looking at her through the mirror. Her eyes always seem to stay low when she's in front of the mirror, only ever glancing at her reflection when absolutely necessary. She's the same with photos of herself. 
Any photo that she looks at for too long, she inevitably hates. Anything I can help you with? I ask. She smiles and turns and kisses me on the cheek. Oh, thank you, love. I, I'm fine, I think. I nod and walk back towards the kitchen and see my phone buzz once again, signaling that the caller left a voicemail. I pull the phone up to my ear and hit play. Hello, Jeremiah. The voice is distant and I'm only half paying attention, as I expect it just to be spam. You don't know me, but my name is Timothy and I... The voice is cut by what sounds like gusts of wind and it's hard to understand what he is saying. I believe I have something important. Oh hey, Rose says as she leans out of the bathroom and I pause the voicemail. Do you think you could bike to Walmart while I'm at work? There's a few things I put on our list for you to grab. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, I say as I set down the phone. I'll listen to the voicemail later. But as I walk over to grab the to-do list off the fridge, Rose cuts me off. Wrong list, she says. We have another list? In my nightstand. I can't see her face at the moment, but I can hear her smile in her voice. I walk over to her nightstand and open it suspiciously. Sure enough, there's a new notepad sitting within the drawer. It matches the one we have pinned on our fridge and is similarly labeled Rose and Jer's to-do list. However, on this one, the words to-do are underlined and written in italics. The list consists entirely of items I'm supposed to buy. Water-based lube, massage candles, a bottle of Rose's favorite type of wine, a throw blanket, and a box of condoms. I blink a couple of times while I read over the list. Rose steps out of the bathroom and grabs her keys. Wait, are you serious? I ask before she steps out the door. Jer, come on. When do I ever not take lists seriously? She gives a good attempt at a wink, but it looks more like she just has something stuck in her eye. Uh, fair point, I say as my face flushes red. Okay, she says with a nod. I'll see you later. Uh, yeah, uh, bye. I fumble as she steps out the door. Up until this point, I had thought her text the other night was a joke. Or perhaps a, a buzzed 3am thought that I figured she'd be embarrassed by in the cold, sober light of day. So, I'm not sure how to react to this. I, I set the list down on the bed and wander out onto the balcony. My coral and red marble chest set sits outside on the table. The piece is still askew from Rose and I's morning game. The sun has moved west, and so I have to shuffle the table and chair further to the right so as to sit in the building's shade. As I move the table, one of the pieces wobbles and then spills off the board onto the ground. I pick it up and am relieved to see it didn't chip or break. The chess set was a birthday present Rose got me the year we first started dating, and it's become a prized possession of mine. However, you wouldn't be able to tell it if you looked at the condition it's in. The set's incomplete as one of the Dark Knights was lost in one of our several moves. A messy line of glue binds a jagged split in one of the light bishops, and one of the corners of the board is chipped from a careless drop. I place all the pieces back on the board and arrange them in their proper order, but of course there is an empty spot on the B8 square where the missing Dark Knight is supposed to be. I, remo I remove the G1 Coral Knight and hold it in my hand so at least there's now a symmetrical gap on both sides of the board. Rose and I, we've never been all that <laughs> adventurous when it comes to sex. And so, if I'm being honest with myself, I feel a bit embarrassed by Rose's newfound sexual confidence. 
Not just because I think the situation is awkward, all sex is awkward to me, so that shit is to be expected. I mainly feel embarrassed because I feel like it means that she's probably growing bored of our sex life. Or maybe she's wanting to spice things up because she's worried that I'm getting bored. But regardless, whether she's doing it for me or for her, or probably for both, it's embarrassing because since we've gotten married, our sex life has grown a bit stale. Before we were married, everything was so exciting. We always had this rush that came from tasting of the forbidden fruit. Often we promised each other that, you know, this will be the last time and that we'll have no more sex until we're married. But, uh, but those promises never did anything but make the temptation all that much more palpable. Every time we would go on a date, or any time we would start to make out, there was always this fun, sort of exciting tension. We were always entering into this dance where we'd move our way as close to the line as possible and then try to pull ourselves back. Often we were able to keep ourselves from crossing that line, but whenever we did end up giving up, whenever that cup of sexual tension filled so full that it began to runneth over... <laughs> oh, man. I remember the first day we finally had sex came the, the day before she left on a, a two-month mission trip to Zimbabwe. We had been dating for a while, and several times we had come very close to having sex, but had found the strength, I suppose you could say, to, to refrain each time. However, on this night, what's the phrase? The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak? Is that how it goes? Either way, I suppose the temptation just became too much. She had an early 6 a.m. flight scheduled, and I was supposed to take her to the airport in the morning, but she was at my apartment, and it was getting so late that I told her, eh, might as well just stay the night at my place. You can have the bed, and I'll sleep on the couch, I remember saying to her, both of us fully aware that I only had the one pull-out couch as both my bed and the couch. I'd phrased it a little like a joke, but of course I was legitimately testing the waters. After thinking about it for a little bit, she nodded. Well, that certainly seems like the most practical solution, she had said. Even that night, we, we towed the line for as long as possible. I think we made out for at least two or three hours, I'm not sure. All I remember is that we had episodes of The Office playing in the background, and I'm sure we made it through at least three or four episodes before articles of clothing started coming off. And even still, we probably kept at a pace of like one episode per article of clothing removed. Are you sure you want to do this? I remember asking her as we lay pressed up against each other, the office theme song starting up again in the background. Yeah, yeah, I do, she said as her eyes danced back and forth between mine. Uh, okay then, I had said. Okay then, she had repeated. I remember when we moved from the couch to the bed, or, I guess, when we paused to pull the bed out of the couch, we were so animated with stupid, giddy, horny energy that we got tripped up in the blanket, and like a couple of kids trying to turn a corner in a three-legged race, we slowly sent each other stumbling to the ground. I was able to slow our fall a little bit by grabbing onto the coffee table, but as I did, I also shoved the table into my floor lamp, knocking it over. We didn't miss a beat, though. Broken lamp on the floor pull-out couch still in mid-transformation, and the blanket wrapped wildly around us. We kept going. It was fun. I mean, it wasn't some mind-blowing experience of divine spiritual and physical ascension. 
It was awkward and a bit embarrassing. There were rug burns and moments of uncomfortable eye contact. But uh, but still, you know, it was it, it was passionate and exciting and intimate, I guess. After we finished that night, I, I fell asleep right there on the floor, awaking about an hour later to a soft nudge. Hey, she said as she leaned over me. We need to head out soon. Oh, shit, I said as I groggily pushed myself up from the floor. D- um, do I have some time to make some coffee? Yeah, we have 10-15 minutes before we should leave. As my eyes slowly adjusted, I realized that she had already showered and packed up her things. You didn't sleep? Figured I could sleep on the plane. I remember when I walked into the kitchen and began to make the coffee, I, I slowly started to feel consumed with this wave of shame and guilt. Listen, I said as I fumbled with the kettle. I'm sorry if I... I didn't mean to mess things up. I know you... I know we had wanted to wait. I drew you something, she said, interrupting me and handing me a scrap of notebook paper. Crossing diagonally over the blue lines of the notebook page, Rose had drawn a picture of my floor lamp laying broken against the ground. The lampshade crookedly resting against the floor, the body of the lamp bent, and a harsh light cutting from the lit bulb across the dark wooden floor. You just drew this? I asked. I was going to draw a picture of you sleeping, but that felt too creepy. At the bottom of the page, underneath the drawing, she had written the words, I miss you already. It was was a sweet line. I miss you already. I fiddle with the coral night piece I hold in my hand as I think back on those early days with Rose. It wasn't just that sex was more exciting back then. I mean, just everything in our relationship felt easier. It was like, it was us versus the world. But now it, it feels like we're caught swimming upstream. I don't know, maybe, maybe it is just the sex. Maybe all we're missing is a little bit of that old spark. Weirdly enough, maybe exactly what we needed was Becca telling Rose that there are areas of sex that she is biblically not allowed to try. I mean, maybe now we have that forbidden fruit again. I put the chest set away and grab my backpack. If she's willing to try new things, I, I need to be willing as well. I mean, if it provides a spark in our relationship, hell, let's do it. Plus, this is one of the only checklists I've ever been given, which I'm pretty much guaranteed not to forget the items on the list, so I gotta take these opportunities when I can. I ride my bike an extra mile to Target because grabbing lube and wine at Walmart seems trashy. As I make my way through the aisles, I I grab a few extra things because purely buying a list of sex items feels a bit too uncomfortable. I grab the condoms and then grab a loaf of bread. I grab the lube and then some Gatorade. Wait, no. Not not a Gatorade. That makes it worse. I put the Gatorade back and grab a, a red onion russet potato. The blanket I get is a machine washable picnic blanket with one soft end and a plastic waterproof side on the bottom. I know she said to get a throw blanket, but this seems more practical and I know nothing turns Rose on more than pure calculated practicality. I grab the wine, so all I have left on the list are the massage candles, which after a quick Google search, I learn are candles that are made of a wax that, when melted, can be safely poured on bare skin. Goddamn, I think to myself, Rose isn't messing around. 
When I finally find the candle aisle, I walk up and down it several times trying to find the ones that are specifically marked as massage candles. I'm not even entirely sure that they have them, and of course, I'm not going to ask anybody. Jeremiah? I hear a familiar voice, and I immediately slide my shopping basket to the opposite hand of where the voice is coming from. I turn and smile at Daniel, who waves and begins walking towards me. Hey, I say, feigning excitement. Fancy seeing you here. Well, you can never walk through a Target without seeing at least one person you know, he says. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, of oh, fucking course. Of course it's Daniel, of all people, that I run into, and of course he's one of those maniacs who actually makes small talk with people he knows, instead of ducking your head and pretending like you don't know each other like any normal person would. I grab a candle. I don't know what candle. Any candle. And I put it in my basket. I'm actually uh, just heading out now, but uh, but it was good to see you, I say. Oh, I, I'm done shopping too. I'll, I'll walk with you, he says cheerily as he pushes his cart out in front of me and heads towards the checkout line. I'm actually glad to see you outside of our session, he says. I've been wanting to tell you just personally how proud I am of your growth. While he's walking in front, I, I linger back a bit, so as I'm just outside of his line of sight, I watch and make sure he's looking ahead while I slowly and subtly try to remove the lube from my basket. I just can't tell you how happy I was when I heard that little Jeremiah had grown up to marry a woman like Rose. He turns back and looks at me for a second and my hand freezes. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it was quite the surprise, I say with a smile. He then turns back and looks forward. I grab the lube and pull it out of the basket and slide it into one of the side pockets in my backpack. No, no not a surprise at all. I always knew God had great things in store for you. I, I remember saying to your parents, God has a great plan for this one, I said. My hands returned back to the basket in search of the box of condoms. She's a keeper, though. I, I hope you know that. True woman of God. I removed the box of condoms, but... Just as I'm about to put them in my backpack again, he turns, and so I hold them low and try not to bring any attention to it. I think you really found a good one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm truly blessed, I say, and then I slide the condoms in with the lube as soon as he turns around again. My plan is to let him go first through the checkout, and then when he leaves, I'll pull the items out of my backpack and pay for them. However... After he goes through the checkout, he lingers and keeps talking to me. I shuffle side glances back and forth between the security cameras, the cashier, and Daniel. A line is formed behind me, so I begin to set my items on the belt. I purposely drop my loaf of bread as I transfer it out of my basket and take my sweet time picking it up. I try to keep my answers short and distracted so Daniel takes the hint that I'm no longer engaging in conversation, but he keeps droning on. The cashier rings up all my items in the basket, and the moment of truth has finally arrived. Fuck it, I guess I'm stealing the lube and condoms. Getting stuff for a picnic? Daniel asks as I quickly back up my items and throw them in my backpack. <laughs> yeah, a picnic. I respond as I hurriedly throw my backpack on and make my way out the exit, Daniel all the while remaining in lockstep with me. My bike is locked up just outside the entrance and I fiddle nervously with the lock as Daniel continues our clearly one-sided conversation. Uh, excuse me? Out of the corner of my eye, I can see a young man with a red vest rushing out after us, but I pretend like I don't hear the voice. 
Sir, excuse me. The voice hiss louder, and Daniel looks back towards the entrance. I finally get my bike unlocked, and I consider hopping on and just bolting out of there. However, I don't have enough time as the young man from the store catches up with us and runs out in front of my bike. Sir, he says, and briefly pauses to catch his breath. You forgot your uh, potato. Oh, uh, uh, thanks, I respond awkwardly, grabbing the potato from his outstretched hand. The cashier smiles and walks back towards the store's entrance, and I stand for a moment and let my heart rate return to normal. Well, that was a nice young man, Daniel says. Okay, well, um, I gotta, I gotta get back, so, um, I'll, I'll see you Wednesday, I say as I stuff the potato in my backpack and hop on my bike, but Daniel puts out a hand in front of me. Oh, just w- one last thing, he says. Uh, the Vines Fall Camp is coming up, and I've been wanting to see if you'd be willing to come by and share your testimony with some of the young men there. The mere mention of the camp immediately forces me to stiffen. What testimony? Well, there will just be a lot of young men who are struggling with their sexuality. The sentence comes out of his mouth so casually that I'm sure I heard him wrong, but he continues. And I think you're just a a testament of how the Lord can transform people's lives if they give themselves over to him. I squeeze my front handbrake so tightly I can feel the plastic bending. You could bring Rose, too. <laughs> I'm sure just the sight of her will set many back on the straight and narrow, he says as he smiles and slaps my shoulder. A fire has lit and is quickly spreading through my mind. My thoughts splinter and I'm paralyzed by warring impulses. I tell myself to strike him, to throw him up against one of these dumb giant red bollards Target has out in front. I, I tell myself to implore him that he's got it all wrong. Explain how it was all a a silly misunderstanding. I tell myself to take my russet potato and shove it forcefully down his throat while shoving the red onion up his ass. I I tell myself to plead with him, to desperately implore that he not tell Rose. Jer? He asks as I'm silent for too long. Uh, okay, um, yeah, I hear myself saying as I maneuver around him and begin to pedal through the parking lot. Okay, you will? He asks, but I speed away and don't look back. I'm not riding home. I'm not riding anywhere specifically. I'm just riding away. The wind whips by me and rips at my jacket as I fly through back roads, hardly looking at where I'm going. I spill out onto Broadway and a sedan honks and swerves to avoid me. Asshole, the man shouts as he accelerates by. A flood of once-tamed memories scatter through my mind like a frenzy of rats bursting from a cage. Memories of the camp, memories of that night with Jonathan, memories of the long, silent drive home after my dad picked me up. I turn to cut through Hyde Park, but I take the corner too sharply and I clip the curb. The back end of my bike skips to the left. I attempt to turn and keep myself from tipping over, but I overcorrect so hard to the right that I send myself off the path directly towards a tree. I slam on my brakes and send myself toppling headfirst, flipping over my handlebars and landing directly on my back just at the foot of the tree. The edges of my vision vignette and things start to slowly go black. I can see hazy outlines of faces that rush over and hover over my head. I gasp to refill the air that's been knocked out of my lungs and suddenly a rush of daylight breaks back through my vision. Oh my god, are you okay? One of the faces says. 
Another immediately holds a hand up to their mouth, and I feel a puddle of warm liquid begin to seep into the dirt around me. I press my hand against my side and then pull it to my face to see it stain red. Linda, the first face says as it rises and looks to the left. Call an ambulance. No, 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 I say as I slowly sit up. I unzip my bag and pull out the bottle of wine. The entire glass bottom has shattered and wine has soaked through my bag. It, it's just wine. I'm, I'm fine. The hand drops from the mouth of the second face and the first face goes from concerned to angry. You can't be going that fast. There are kids around here, he says. I hold the bottle upside down and see that there are a few ounces of wine left in the neck. I hold the jagged end up to my lips and take a drink before laying the now empty bottle off to the side. I turn my bag over and try to dump out all the wine and broken glass. The condoms and lube fall out, but my lack of embarrassment informs me just how much pain I'm still in. The few who crowd around me begin to slowly dissipate after I reassure them that I'm okay and they reassure me that I'm an idiot. After a few minutes, the the pain in my back subsides to manageable levels, and I push myself over next to the tree and lean back against it. I'm worried I've fucked up my bike, but I don't have the energy or the motivation to check it quite yet. I rest my head against the tree and try to breathe deeply as I shut my eyes. Each breath works to melt the frigid mania that still clings to my mind, but even still my my thoughts remain fractured. I struggled to wrap my head around what Daniel had said. I thought that this issue had long been buried. I thought everyone knew it was just a misunderstanding and that Daniel and my parents and the camp, they all just overreacted. I'm a married man now, for God's sake. I not because God transformed my life. I never was. They were wrong. I breathe in and try to think of something else. I think of the old red brick house I grew up in. There was a window in our upstairs guest bedroom that I used to climb out of. The frame of the window jutted up vertically out of the pitch ceiling. The roof of the window itself was mainly flat, bowing slightly on each end so as to keep rainwater from pooling atop it. There was this large oak tree in our backyard and its branches stretched out over the window, shading this little spot on the roof. I remember I used to go there to, to relax or to hide out, to think. When we had returned from the camp that day, I I remember my dad sent me to my room, but I I snuck out to this spot on the roof instead. I can still feel that moment, that nauseating shame and fear I felt turning in my stomach. I can feel the hot summer wind still brushing around me. The air was wet and thick and held wafts of backyard barbecues and the thick semen-like smell of the flowers of the dogwood tree on the side of our house. We tell ourselves stories about the events in our lives, and we tell them with such fervor and frequency that we often forget that it's just a story. We build our little narratives like castles in the sand. We convince ourselves that these places are are safe for us, and we take up residence, make a home for ourselves in these fragile little worlds we've created. But then, eventually, the waves come. The waves always come and it doesn't take much just the small swelling and pulling of the tide and the foundation of our little castles bow and sink am i okay 
Just the smallest wave lapping at my feet. Just a simple sentence spoken by a man whose opinion I swore I'd never care about. And everything begins to dissolve. Just the smallest indication that my story is not the same story that others are telling themselves. And I fling myself uncaringly out into traffic. Do I really have so little control over my mind? But my story... It's, it's still true, right? They... Weren't they wrong about me? 